Let's stand for the reading of God's Word. Open your Bibles if you have one with you, or don't forget you can follow along on version on the Bible app, because there you'll find an outline and be able to take notes and keep up with what we do here in the message of God's Word. So from Acts chapter 3, it says, Now repent of your sins and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped away. Then times of refreshment will come from the presence of the Lord, and he will again send you Jesus, your appointed Messiah. For he must remain in heaven until the time for the final restoration of all things, as God promised long ago through his holy prophets. Father, thank you for truth. Thank you, Lord, that in an age where the spirit of error and the spirit of lying and the spirit of the evil one seems to pervade everything all around us in the atmosphere. For the spirit of truth here today, there is one truth. It is you. And we thank you for it today in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. This passage takes you all the way back to Enoch. The first prophet, seventh from Adam, whose predictions, some of which are recorded in the book of Jude in the New Testament. Then you move from Enoch to Moses, right on through Jeremiah in the scripture. In the heavens, it says, will hold Christ until the restoration of all things. Jesus put it like this, in my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so... I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Paul wrote, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. I like that caught up stuff. That's kind of cool, isn't it? And thus, we shall always be with the Lord. I mean, there's not any kind of vessel that's been created that can transport as quickly as he will on that day. In Ephesians He also wrote that in the dispensation of the fullness of times, when everything is starting to come to a conclusion, he might gather together in one all things in Christ. Then he says, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. So not everyone is going to die before the return of the Lord. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, At the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. Wow. Then Peter wrote, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, because some people think, well, he's delayed it so long. Maybe this is, no, he's not slack. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. So before you even blink, He's there, and it's done, right? These passages are a promise 
that Jesus Christ will return to earth. And if Christ fulfilled every prophecy concerning his first appearance all the way through the Old Testament, and we're getting ready to celebrate his birth again, why should we doubt him about his second appearance? In order for us not to lose sight of our responsibilities, he's assigned to his church. He takes us through times and seasons. And because he's got a mission for the church, as he was sent, he sends us on the same exact mission. And the closer we get to the return of Jesus, times and seasons are being compressed. You know, I've often wondered, and I've shared it with my wife and family at times, it just seems like, even though there's still 24 hours in a day, that they go by faster than they used to, right? Instead of every 25 years something is fulfilled and we observe it, as we draw closer, it's every year and every month and every week, and things continue to move at a very rapid pace. Daniel, the, pro the pro great prophet, said that in the end of days, that knowledge will increase very, very rapidly, and everything will be moving at a very fast pace. And we see multiple, even the earth is groaning under the pressure of the curse. The scripture is very clear that even the physical world around us has suffered from the fall of humanity. So we're having multiple hurricanes and earthquakes and fires. They're all wake-up calls, that not so much that we, we, we are going to be the ones in charge of climate change, but the one who really is in charge of climate change is sending us a message that we better wake up today. There are reminders that God has given us pointing to the time of the end. There was the end of World War I. From about 1900 to 1917, the following things took place. There were three major outpourings of the Holy Spirit across the United States. One in North Carolina in 1906. Then there was the Great Azusa Street Revival occurred at the time of the San Francisco earthquake, and it turned California toward the Lord. Many people lost their lives, many lost all they had, and people began to call on the name of the Lord. Azusa Street broke out as a result. Then came the Topeka, Kansas outpouring. There was an outpouring on the East Coast, there was an outpouring in the Midwest, and then the Azusa Street revival here on the West Coast. God manifest himself in three locales in a 10-year period. And there was a great move of the Holy Spirit across the land. Those were the early rain outpourings. The first beginning of God telling us we've entered a new season. At the end of World War I, something happened that changed world history. So while God is at work in the spiritual, the adversary is always at work in the physical. Communism began to be unfolded across the world. Marx... Lenin, Stalin, under these, no more freedom of religion. Under communism, your religion and your God become the state. Preachers were arrested, Bibles confiscated and banned. We're watching progressives today attempting to do the same thing in the United States of America. A growing number of Americans believe progressives are a threat to freedom prosperity, and morality. And that's an accurate assumption. 
and they are not just alarmed by voter fraud, they're enraged because the left hates the middle class. So let's forget about the wokers and let's start paying attention and being grateful for our American workers, the people who get up every day and go after it and make a difference in their families and our community. These are the ones who make America great. Amen? And they should be celebrated. And we're not just alarmed by some of the things we're hearing and observing. We're enraged because recently the White House, this is an interesting development that's happened. Let me read it to you so you, I, I, I quote it accurately. It's a very important topic that we need to address. The records now have proven that the White House colluded with the National School Board Association to produce that letter asking the Department of Justice to investigate concerned parents as domestic terrorists. Can you believe that? Can you imagine we'd ever see a day like this in the United States of America, that we would have this kind of evil toward the people who make up this great land? So yes, there should be an enragement and an attitude of we, can, we will not stand for this and push back because it's been declared that moms who protest at school board meetings are potentially domestic terrorists. How, how in the world can we ever come to this kind of a conclusion in our justice system in the United States of America? Going back in history, in 1917, the Ottoman Empire controlled Jerusalem, Egypt, Syria, and Lebanon. General Edmund Allenby, he wanted to liberate Jerusalem. He was told that God would deliver Jerusalem by planes flying overhead that even Isaiah prophesied about. So Allenby dropped leaflets by airplane over Jerusalem. And here's what those leaflets said. Surrender Jerusalem to the British. And it was signed in Turkish. And the way it read to them was Allah Nibel, God and prophet, Allah's prophet. So they surrendered Jerusalem without firing a shot. That was miraculous because after 400 years of Turkish rule, there was a liberated Jerusalem. Allenby got off his white stallion and walked into Jerusalem instead of riding in and asked, why are you walking and not riding? And he said, quote, the only person who will ride into this city on a white stallion will be the Messiah when he returns, end quote. Wow. In 1917, a Jewish chemist invented a substitute for gunpowder because the British were in short supply. And it helped them when it came to World War I to finish strongly and, and, and victoriously. In return, the British asked what he would like in return, this chemist. What would you like? Because you, you've helped us as a nation. He said, I want a decree that the Jewish people can return to Palestine. And the Lord Belfort Declaration ensued, was put together. It said, quote, we give the Jews permission to return to Palestine. So in 1929, a few years later, came the Great Depression. It affected the United States of America and the whole world. Then World War II broke out, Pearl Harbor. Hitler rose to power. And when you read about what Hitler did, the wickedness, you would have thought, that is the Antichrist. 
He controls people with his speech-making. He created the German mark, the association, the mark of the beast. That was hurriedly made. Controlled buying and selling took place under the Nazis. Hitler revealed the crooked cross, the swastika. He arrested and murdered Jews. These were signals and signs that the end was at hand and signals that linked many prophecies from the Old Testament. The United States entered the war and with allies prevailed over tyranny, rising into the world. Freedom prevailed. Thank God. Amen. Freedom prevailed. And sometimes those that were preaching the gospel, well-intentioned, identified certain characters as the Antichrist. I mean, I could take you through a litany of names that I've heard in my lifetime that some preachers were identifying as the Antichrist. Many times, in, in desire to put the pieces of the puzzle together, there was mis, mistaken identity and mistaken signs and seasons. Then the UN agreed to create a Jewish state. In May 1948, Ben-Gurion was asked the name of that Jewish state. President Truman was pressured to not recognize that new state. Our State Department thought of some different names like Zion or Judah or Judea, and every prophet told us it would only have one name, Israel. So Truman talked with a rabbi who referred him to these prophets and their prophecies. And the conclusion that Truman had was, the land will be called Israel. A second wave of God's presence began simultaneously. When that happened in Israel, there was a move of the Holy Spirit across the United States. It was the great healing evangelist emerging with a message of God's power. It was called the Restoration Revival. In 1948, T.L. Osborne, William Branham, Gordon Lindsay, A.A. Allen, Jack Coe, you remember him, Jack would come up on the platform when it was time to preach singing, and he walks with me and talks with me and tells me I am his own. And miracles would break out across that room, huge tents. The healing revival was so successful because our nation realized that Israel became a nation. It was a prophetic miracle of restoration that God promised throughout his word that one day this great nation would once again reassemble itself. America, for the first time, began to hear the messages concerning the return of Jesus. We began to start studying a little more carefully what the Scripture had to say. All Roberts published a book called Jesus is Coming Again. All ministers of, those, of that era had one night during their revivals when they preached on the return of Jesus. You remember those days, Sister Long? You remember those days when they would have revivals? One night was dedicated to the return of Jesus. And they knew Jesus could not return until Israel was a nation once again. So that triggered that hunger and that desire to know a little bit more about this phenomenal promise that Jesus made, I will come again and receive you to myself. Jerusalem was a divided city, and something had to happen. So the prophets told us that Jerusalem belongs in the hands of God's people, 
and would be in the hands of God's people before Jesus would return. In 1967, Egypt planned to destroy Israel, but Israel preempted it with an airstrike, and Russian-made tanks were driving toward Israel from Egypt. All the tanks stalled. All the Egyptian soldiers left them. And why? When they were being interviewed, they said, we looked up and saw thousands of paratroopers coming down from the sky, all dressed in white. We were outnumbered. But there were no Israeli or American troops dropping out of planes in white. It was God's intervention, the angels of the Lord in the middle of that war. The Israeli army had to cross then a stretch of desert to fight, but that stretch had been mined by the adversary. And so Israel was stalled there, but some of them began to pray. And remember the songs that they sang? We heard them when we were in Israel. They repeated them for us, the soldiers who were there when all of this happened that I'm telling you about. And as they prayed and they sang the praises of God, a hurricane force wind came out of nowhere and blew all the sand off of the mines where they had been hidden and they were all exposed. So they were able to march across that desert for victory. It was a six-day war. On the third day of the war, Israel captured the rest of Jerusalem and tore out the no man's land. Now, if you take charge of your history, you'll remember there are only two wars in history that lasted six days, when Joshua took Jericho and when the Jews took Jerusalem. What God did released another season, 1967, the charismatic movement broke out. And it began to work, the power of the Spirit began to work among Catholic believers. At Notre Dame University, they filled the football stadium with people assembled who wanted more of the power and presence of the Lord in their lives and sought for the fullness of the Holy Spirit to give them direction. Even some evangelical churches began for the first time to embrace the power and presence of the Holy Spirit. Out of that, Catherine Kuhlman's ministry emerged, and a sweeping Jesus movement began. These were God-coordinated evidences, seasons and times that all were predictors of the return of Jesus. Each sparked an awakening among God's people to stop sitting and get busy about God's business which is reaching people with the gospel. And what the Lord does in seasons, he revives and stirs his people out of their slumber. Recently, we've seen the sequencing of the blood moons and cosmic activities, the recent eclipse of the sun, asteroid flybys, even taking NASA unawares about two days ago, wars and rumors of wars, pestilence. Hmm. Yeah, we've all been through a year and a half of that. The deserts of Israel are blooming and, and just overflowing with farms and produce. Where there had been drought, the latter rains have returned falling on Israel and Jews returning to Israel from the nations all over the world, assembling once again in that nation. We should be about the business of spreading the gospel in anticipation of the return of Jesus. These should all be signs to us. 
we should be alert to them. The apostles in their day were looking for the return of Jesus because Jesus made a promise. They thought in our lifetime, we're going to get to see that. Well, obviously, it didn't happen in their lifetime because we need a fuller, better understanding of the times and seasons. But here were the promises that God gave, the, gave us. To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time. James wrote, you also be patient, establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Thank God we have that word for us today. Jesus said, behold, I am coming quickly. And what these passages mean, when all this stuff begins to happen and you begin to see the signs of the age and the rapidly moving events that are happening without resolution, perplexities among the people, that, that passage and those passages are telling us it's all going to happen very quickly, very fast. After Jesus resurrected, he went up to Galilee and he's speaking to Peter and he says to Peter, when you were younger, you girded yourself and walked where you wished. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will gird you and carry you where you do not wish. Jesus is telling Peter, you will have a relatively long life. And then Peter looked at John and says to Jesus, Peter seeing John said to Jesus, but Lord, what about this guy, right? And Jesus said to Peter, if I will that he remain till I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Okay? Peter, it doesn't matter if he's alive when I return. Do what I have asked you to do. Feed my sheep. Take care of the business of getting the gospel everywhere you can. Then this saying went about the brethren that this disciple would not die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he would not die, but if I will that he remain till I come, what is that to you? So you can see how sometimes people listening are not hearing, right? After, the Jerusal after Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 AD, all the apostles were dead except for John. John was banished to the Isle of Patmos by the Roman Empire, trying to isolate him, having attempted already to kill him, but he did not die. So they sent him out to this island, hoping that he would die there or never to be heard of or from again. People would forget about him. Then he was finally released. Of course, while he's there, he writes the last book of Holy Scripture called the Revelation of Jesus Christ. But here he comes back off that island, and he later died in Ephesus in 100 AD. The early church believed that the return of Jesus was connected to John because of what God had revealed to him, that somehow they, they would end the issue, Rome thought, by getting rid of John or him dying naturally, one way or the other, we're going to end this issue that Jesus is going to come back. We'll put an end to this because once John's gone, that's the end of the originals, and that story will go away. Jesus will not have to worry about coming back because all the apostles will stop telling this story. Well, John passed to heaven, but what did the church do after John moved on to heaven? Well, persecution broke out. 
and it just pushed them into the ends of the earth with the gospel. The next generation understood and felt the pressures of tribulation and martyrdom. People were being killed for the message of Jesus. In the fourth century, a new emperor reigned, and he made Christianity to become acceptable in the Roman Empire. All the previous Caesars were out to destroy and eliminate Christendom, but this one Caesar decided, Constantine, that he was going to end the persecution, and Christianity began to grow under the Roman Empire. Then came what was called dominion theology, or the kingdom has arrived. The church is the kingdom, and the pope is the vicar of Christ, or the governor on earth. So they began to attempt to usher in the kingdom of God on earth. Then the Byzantine Empire rose, and imperial Rome began to collapse. The Byzantines started preaching the kingdom, and they built churches everywhere in Israel. You can still go visit them and see some of the edifices they built for the glory of God. But it was all interrupted by a man named Muhammad from Arabia. He built a huge following. He didn't conquer by peace. He conquered by war. And you followed or you died. And the Quran was very clear. Uh, Those that followed Muhammad could have multiple wives. For the believer in Christianity and servants of the Lord, one spouse. Islam spread everywhere, subjugating people until they got to Spain. And Spain held them off. And there's a battle over then, then in the Holy Land called the Crusades. Religious battles over and over and over. Bloodshed. Because the battles in the spirit realm around us manifest in the material world. And then we arrived into the 18th century. And some say the rapture wasn't taught until the 18th, or before the 18th century. But until the 18th century, there were no signs indicating his imminent return. None. No Israel, no Jews control, controlling Jerusalem, and preachers taught that it would not happen until Jesus returned, that Israel wouldn't get back until Jesus came back. Bring the Jews from the four corners of the world. That the Jews would restore Jerusalem after Jesus came back. They thought Jerusalem would only be restored after the millennial reign of Christ. Then the Bible was being printed in everyone's language so they could begin to read it for themselves. And it began to become common for anybody and everybody to be able to get a copy of God's Word. Throughout Europe, people began to read the Word of God for themselves and not rely just on someone to interpret it for them. The Geneva Bible was published. That was also the version over in England. And then that was the version that our pilgrims and pioneers used when they first came to America. The first missionaries were from Britain and from Scotland and from Ireland, and they felt they were ushering in the kingdom. The preaching of prophecy influenced the taking of Palestine. Then came the American Revolution. America had a manifest destiny to take the gospel to the whole world. In fact, our State Department actually funded some of our early missionaries. Now, we're talking about funding things that are illegal and law-breaking. 
How, how did we get here? That's what I want like to know. Students' tuition was paid for by our government so our missionaries could go and evangelize. There was no separation of church and state. But yet another interruption happened in our history called the Civil War. And every human being was declared free. That's the way God intended it from the beginning. Charles Finney discovered we've had a problem in our theology and the way we've conducted our interpretation of events in history. See, the Roman church thought they were the kingdom. The, the, the British thought that they were the kingdom, their empire, preaching the gospel, sending missionaries, that they were the kingdom. America thought we were the kingdom. All were attempting to bring the kingdom without the king returning. There can be no kingdom until he shows up, right? Finney taught we need to preach Jesus as the king. And Jesus is coming back as the king. The hymns that were sung before Finney were all about the majesty of God. But from Finney forward, the new songs were going to be like, there's going to be a meeting in the air in the sweet, sweet by and by. And so those songs were birthed. An awakening happened. Jesus had to return for his kingdom in order for it to fully manifest. And that was exactly what was being preached and taught. It's kind of an interesting understanding. The Bible teaches there will be a first resurrection, which will happen simultaneously with what's called the rapture. There will be a second resurrection after the millennial reign of Jesus, which will be the resurrection of those that are damned for eternity. It's an interesting understanding of Scripture. There are two resurrections mentioned in the Word of God. Then the Scripture tells us that the rapture, believers will meet the Lord in the air at the second coming or return physically to earth. Believers will return with Jesus to the earth. See, there's distinction here. God promised that his followers are not appointed to wrath, but deliverance. For God has not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ. We which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds. It's very clear in Scripture that there's going to be a meeting in the air in the sweet, sweet by and by. Amen? Very clear in the Word of God. He tells us that. Okay, so here's how this all works. Then an awakening began to happen in the churches across the world. Jesus had to return for his kingdom to fully come. So from Azusa Street to today, this message now has come out of the Word of God and is being preached because we're getting a better view now of what history looked like biblically in the times and seasons. In the, in the 1600s, Sir Isaac Newton prophesied that near the end of, of the age, men would take the words of prophecy literally and begin to preach Jesus' return. He had that word back in the 1600s. He also had a word that Jews would 
fly back to the Holy Land, Sir Isaac Newton. Voltaire called Newton a fool. He said, quote, if man moves at 60 miles an hour, his skin will melt, end quote. <laughs> that shows you how much he knew, right? Why hasn't the king, Jesus the Christ, returned as yet? There has to be a fullness of time before there is the restoration of all things. When time becomes full before the restoration, that in the dispensation of the fullness of the times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. He's pulling it all together. When time becomes full, he brings the saints from heaven and we meet him and them in the air. We are in the season of the mercy of God or reconciliation, which means we should be actively, passionately sharing the message of reconciliation and the mercy of God. Paul called it a dispensation of the gospel. The gospel must be preached in the time or season frame that we are in. We're in this time frame that God has allotted, allotted for the human race to hear the message of Jesus. And what is the fullness of time? The fullness of time is a set time when all of the prejudgment prophecies are fulfilled. Prejudgment, some call it the great tribulation, but it's actually the judgment of God on this planet. It's the end of the age of mercy and the beginning of the judgments of God. So the fullness of time is the set time when all of the pre-judgment prophecies of God are fulfilled. We are in that time slot. There has to be the fullness of the Gentiles to bring all of this time frame to a conclusion. And here's what Paul wrote. For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery. That's why so many, so many fumbled with this lest you should be wise in your own opinion. That blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. There will be blindness to the reality of who Jesus is for Israel until the full number of Gentiles are born again that God wants redeemed. God alone knows what that number is to be born again among the Gentiles. But when that moment happens, it concludes the fullness of the Gentiles. That's why sharing the gospel is so important and so vital to the ministry of the church. The faster the church gets it done, Jesus will return. Then there's the fullness of iniquity that's happening at the same time. And in the latter time of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their fullness, a king shall arise having fierce features, who understands sinister schemes. He's under the influence of Satan himself. That's an Antichrist passage. Antichrist will be revealed when the iniquity of the culture becomes full. How many know it's not going to take a whole lot more before the cup is full? God revealed the concept to Abraham. He said this, they will afflict them 400 years. Afterward, they'll come out with great possessions. But in the fourth generation, they shall return here, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. The Amorites were wicked when their iniquity has reached 
my capacity, God says, I will bring your lineage out of Egypt to destroy them. What is the fullness of iniquity? In Revelation, there's a woman riding a horse with a cup full of the blood of the martyrs. Wickedness is like pouring wine into a cup, inch deep to start with, and they keep sinning, and they keep violating the principles of God, and they keep thinking, I'm getting away with it. No one's stopping me, right? Then it's two inches deep. And if they repent and turn back to God, he takes and pours the cup over, turns it over, and empties it. That's called mercy. He did that for all of us. We're in this room today because of the mercy of God turning the cup of our iniquity over. He pours the cup out and empties it. It's mercy. Repentance brings the mercy of God. Amen? He will turn over the cup of our iniquity. Now, some would have died a long time ago if God had not been on your side. And we praise God. Thank you for helping us. Thank you for rescuing us. Thank God for what he did when we didn't even know he did it. God protected us when we were not even aware of it. So celebrate what he did, and you didn't even know about it when he was doing it. Because God is merciful, and we're in a season of God's mercy. But in that cup of iniquity that's continuing to fill are the names of the aborted unborn, of those who think it's okay to violate the principles of one man for one woman, and same-sex marriage. In that cup, bathroom access to any gender. You know, some can do jail time now in places on this planet for not being politically correct on these issues. We are Bible here at Calvary Christian Center. I said we are Bible here at Calvary Christian Center. I read a report I got the other day. Nearly 70% of born-again Christians, this is insanity going on in American churches, 70% of born-again Christians disagree with the biblical position that Jesus is the only way to God. Survey conducted by Probe Ministries helps the church in renewing the minds of believers from this culturalization that's happened over the decades in our churches. They polled 3,000-plus Americans ages 18 to 55 from all religious groups, including 717 who identified as fully born-again Christians. And here's what they discovered. Born-again believers agree that I will go to heaven because I confessed my sins and accepted Jesus as my Savior. Thank you, Lord. And here's what really struck me. The survey found that among the top reasons given by born-again Christians for not telling others about their faith is the acceptance of pluralism. When asked why they don't share their beliefs with others, born-again respondents said they can get to heaven through their different religious beliefs. We should not impose our beliefs on others. The Bible tells us not to judge others those were the responses being given by those who claim to be born-again believers. Listen, pluralism and the gospel don't work. They don't come together, okay? 
Jesus boldly declared, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Peter, before the Jewish leaders, is preaching and he says, nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Paul continued this in his, in his ministry, for there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. When nearly 70% of born-again Christians believe Peter, Jesus, Paul were wrong? Is that, is that the perspective of those in the church today? That that percentage believes that Jesus and Paul and Peter were wrong? It's heresy, and that will send people to hell. We have to refuse to bow to the pressures of pluralism in this culture and stand for biblical truth. I don't know about you, but as for me and my house, we are serving the Lord and only the Lord and his truth. Amen. And that's who we are at Calvary Christian Center. At, at CCC, we are Bible. We will stand when the national anthem is being sung. I have friends I went to school with who gave their lives in Vietnam for our freedom. There are men and women in uniform today who have served us, and they paid, have paid with their limbs and their lives and some of the stressors they came back from war with and others who laid down their lives for America's freedom. I will always honor them because we enjoy freedom in America. And when that anthem is played, I will stand and I will put my hand over my heart and I will give thanks to God for the people who keep us free. Families are so messed up from God's original intent and God's divine design. And here's some of the things you're hearing today. Tolerated, applauded in some cases. Today, I feel like a girl. And that's what one of them did when he went in and raped that young girl in the girl's washroom in a school in Virginia because he put a skirt on that day and said, I feel like a girl. What happens when you feel like a dog? What's going to happen then? When the cup of iniquity gets full, Antichrist will be able to show up and take everything over without firing a shot. The fullness of the gospel is the next step we're looking at. And this gospel of the kingdom, Jesus said, will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. Amen? In other words, I will have assembled before me in the heavenlies someone representing every people group on the planet. I want my church to go out and make sure every people group gets to hear of the message of my mercy. What's the fullness of the gospel? Every person, every nation gets to hear the gospel. All tribes will have heard the gospel. Now, the United States has stood against demonic plans since its inception. Satan looks at America and says, you know, I can't do what I want to do on this planet fully. I can't reveal the Antichrist, the beast, and world domination as long as American freedom exists. 
because we won't roll over on our freedom, right? And when we pray, that essential knowledge must be in our hearts and in our minds. David, under this kind of a threat in his own kingdom, said, God is in his temple, and he's on his throne. And how in the world would David have known that unless he was looking straight at the throne of God and God giving him a vision in the midst of his being surrounded by adversaries, by those threatening to attack Israel, David the warrior king always kept his focus and his eyes on the Lord. Let that be said of us as American citizens. So must the embattled believer in America. We must keep our eyes on the Lord. And this war must be won. The Christian righteous have dug in their heels. And thank God you're starting to see and feel the rumbling under the surface. Believers are starting to stand up and say, no more of this. We're not going to compromise. Freedom is returning because as the sheep and goats are being separated, the power of God will be manifested across the United States of America. We are living at the breaking day of a fresh outpouring of the Spirit in the United States. The sun is beginning to rise again, and we are about to see a literal explosion of faith in the body of Christ. Faith for miracles, faith for healing, faith for provision, faith for the greatest harvest of souls in the history of the world, and faith for the salvation of nations, because this message will be preached in all the world for a witness. I feel that coming move of the Spirit in my spirit. He is coming to us in the greatest move of God in the history of the world. That's a part of the promise. The fullness of the Spirit shall come to pass. Afterward, the prophet Joel said, I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh, and your sons and daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, your young men shall see visions, and also on my maids men's servants and on my maidservants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. That's repeated by Peter in Acts chapter 2. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my, my spirit upon all people. How many know we're in the last days? If not the last hours, right? Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see vision. The miraculous is going to break out all over the church, right? And your old men will dream dreams. And in those days, I will pour out my spirit even on my servants, men and women alike, and they will prophesy. And that means people are going to hear the gospel and get saved. I'm praying for an impartation of fresh anointing in the Western church, because we need that. In Isaiah, it says, no weapon that is formed against you will prosper, and every tongue that shall rise against you in judgment, you shall show to be in the wrong. This, this, the triumph over opposition, is the heritage of the servants of the Lord. This is the vindication which they obtain from me, says the Lord. We're the sons and daughters of God, the God of angel armies, the God of the armies of all of heaven. We, must have, we have to shake up our thinking and shake up our spirit and shake ourselves and look in the mirror and realize we come from a legacy of supernatural power. We were birthed on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. 
And out of that comes a stream and a remnant of people that have to live in the flow of the Holy Spirit of God. That's our roots. That's who we are. We are emboldened to become the witness for Jesus and his kingdom. That's who we are. We aren't anything else. We're not a religious club. We're not a denomination. That's what's needed in this moment more than anything else, a fresh anointing that God wants to pour out on his church. And I'm ready for that. How about you? That he may send, that's the Father, may send Jesus Christ, who was preached to you before, whom heaven must receive until the times of restoration of all things. When everything gets where it needs to be, historically, seasonally, the dispensationally, period of mercy and and, and grace of God, then Jesus will return. Israel was restored as a nation in 1948. Isaiah said, as soon as Zion was in labor, she gave birth to her children. And out of great torture and difficulty, once again, Israel came to be, was reassembled, was reestablished, 1948. Jerusalem God says is to become the capital of Israel, eventually be the capital of the world, because it's there that Jesus is going to reign. He will not reign from D.C. He will not reign from Sacramento. But I can promise you this, he will reign over D.C., and he will reign over Sacramento. And what he says is going to happen, right? So Jerusalem will be the capital of Israel, And so the Lord's fame will be celebrated in Zion, his praises in Jerusalem, when the multitudes gather together and the kingdoms come to worship the Lord. And we will go to Israel. If you haven't been there, you're going to go to worship the Lord. Jews returning to Israel from the nations of the world is another sign of the day. For I will bring them back into their land, which I gave to their fathers. I'm going to keep my promises to my people. The land of Israel blossoming like a rose. The desert shall rejoice and blossom as a rose. My goodness, you know, we've got great ag out here in California. But I'm telling you, I've never seen oranges as big as I've seen in Israel. They're as big as our grapefruits. Unbelievable what God is able to do in blessing them in the middle of the desert land. Israel shall blossom and bud and fill the face of the world with fruit. They continuously export all the produce that they grow. It's miraculous blessing of God on that nation. Israel, a great and unbeatable army, and breath came into them. Here's the restitution and the revitalization, and breath came into them, and they lived and stood upon their feet, an exceedingly great army. That's a formidable bunch there, folks. I mean, a formidable bunch. Why hasn't Jesus returned as yet? The church has yet to fulfill the great commission. We have not preached the gospel as vigorously and as passionately as we've been called to, and we certainly have left some people groups still unreached. Jesus said that has to happen first. When that has happened, then he can gather his people. Then comes the great judgment. 
See, if the judgment came first, the Antichrist would prevent the gospel from being preached because he would be on earth. In Thessalonians, it says Antichrist can't appear until we have finished the Great Commission. The outpouring of the Holy Spirit on your sons and daughters has already begun. The Spirit of the Lord is at work. I mean, there the report I received the other day of over 100 students, student age, being baptized in the Holy Spirit at one time in one service. There's a friend of mine whose son-in-law has started a work in Orlando, and he's been reporting that in these worship scenarios and services, the students are coming like crazy for one purpose and one reason. They're simply singing great, wonderful worship songs, and people are thronging into that auditorium because they want one thing, to stand in the presence of Jesus. And then as a part of that, standing together in the presence of Jesus, many of them are filled with the Holy Spirit just standing there in worship. Now, they've got a big event scheduled for the month of December for two days and two nights where they're going to fill a stadium with students from all over America seeking God for this latter day outpouring, the latter rain, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Our children and grandchildren will experience all that God promised to the church. They're going to have everything that God said they were going to have. And what's going to bring Jesus back? Completing our work assignment. Not just sitting in church and enjoying ourselves, but completing our work assignment. It will hasten the return of Jesus. And from our inception, we have been commissioned and blessed for simply three reasons. First, to preach the gospel. That's the first commandment he gives us after serving God, after loving each other. Then his commission is to go and preach to every person the message of the gospel. That's our first and foremost position to take. Secondly, and by the way, that was the covenant that the pilgrims made when they had a covenant with God before they got off the Mayflower. That covenant was simple, and here's what it was, that they were going to preach the gospel throughout all of the colonies, that they were going to, col- they were going to preach the gospel and see the colonies come to know the Lord. That's in their original covenant. They were willing to do what Jesus asked them to do even in a land they hadn't lived in before. The second thing we're called to do is stand with Israel. We are called as a people to stand. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. And the third thing we're called to do is care for the impoverished nations and peoples of the world, to do all we can to help as many people as we can. And our nation has been at the forefront of doing that from its beginning. Even in our fallen, backslidden, immoral state, America still stands as a firewall. But we need to take a 180-degree turn. Amen? I said we need a 180-degree turn. We need to get back to who we are and what we are. I was looking at this statement the other day, and it, it really hit home when I was reading it. It was talking about some who are interested in gathering but not interested in going. And it's very important to us that we gather. And the scripture is very clear about that we're supposed to gather. But it's also equally as clear as we're to be going as well as gathering, right? 
And all, all we do is focus inwardly on ourselves and what we like and what we want, we become impotent. We can't reproduce doing that. We can only reproduce when we go out with what we have and share the message of the gospel. Opening our Bibles, reading what God tells us to do, preachers, teachers, the whole church, speaking of Jesus' work of reconciliation in the marketplace, missions to our urban centers, to the whole world, to wherever we're found, we are to bring the gospel. We have to realize that the church is built on the rock and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Jesus said in Matthew 16, 18, I say to you that you are Peter and on this rock, your confession that I am the Christ, I will build my church and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Realize we're fighting with the weapons that God gave us. We are confident of victory because of the cross of Jesus and the resurrection and the last day anointing of the Holy Spirit. The word of the Lord shall go out from Zion, the scripture says. Think about that. God's word is going to be preached out of Jerusalem. Today on Mount Zion, there are two buildings, prophecies being fulfilled already right now. One's the Daystar studio, and the other is the TBN studio. And the word of the Lord is being broadcast out of Zion, just like the scripture promised. Amen. Hallelujah. All things are now ready. We just need to get busy and give it one more push to start sharing Jesus, to begin showing up for Sunday nights, to be hungry for God again, to come to prayer meeting eagerly seeking him, to connect in small groups and then encourage each other in those groups to build disciples, which means followers, people who now can effectively lead another group as a result of being taught and discipled in their original group. Because Paul even says to members of the church, by now some of you should be teachers. Instead, you're still drinking milk, and you should be out teaching others. And we need to have people who are willing to be discipled and take leadership. You don't have to be a profound teacher or an orator. You just need to be able to stand or sit and share a little bit of the love of the Lord with people from the Word of God. Uh, be at prayer group. Be, be at connect groups. Be bold in speaking for Jesus. Pay more attention to God's Word than any other of your recreations. And serve in the church. That's the place to bring the newborns for discipleship and the replication and the building and pouring into next generation of people who take positions of leadership and teaching, do something for the kingdom every single day and start every day by asking God to give you boldness to share the gospel with people who haven't heard. Amen? Look for every opportunity to bring people hope in a hopeless culture and blessing to someone who's struggling and lift them displaying what Jesus means to you as a born-again servant of the Lord. Amen. So, you know, even tonight, when some kid comes knocking on your door and ringing your doorbell, you might hand them some candy, 
But you know what else you might hand them? The love of Jesus. Look them in the face and say, you know what? Jesus loves you. He's got a purpose for you. What a world we live in today. It's ripe for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's stand together. Let's thank him. Thank you, Father. You're a good God. You're better to us than we've deserved. We need more of you in our lives. Not so we can just sit in church and enjoy ourselves, but to get out of here and do what we're called to do everywhere we go. Share the love of Jesus. We bless you for your faithfulness to us.